Do you know how many sunrises an astronaut sees in a single day from the International Space Station? Make a guess. We're at the largest planetarium in France, nestled in the volcanic region of Auvergne near Clermont-Ferrand, inside a theme park called Vulcania. Vulcania offers its visitors an immersive journey to unveil the mysteries of the Earth's interior. And since 2020, it also provides insights into the universe from this planetarium. 16 sunrises, that's the answer to our previous question. The International Space Station completes an orbit around the Earth roughly every 90 minutes, resulting in 16 orbits in 24 hours. It maintains this pace to counteract the pull of gravity, allowing it to continuously fall around the Earth without actually crashing into it. This is one of the things our producer Marta learned during the planetarium's workshop titled Dans la peau d'un astronaute. In the skin of an astronaut. She was there in search of questions for ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer. Matthias spent 177 days falling around the Earth on board the International Space Station between November 2021 and May 2022. In this episode, we'll try to experience what he lived through during those days and put ourselves in his skin, or should we say, in his spacesuit. Welcome to Euronews Tech Talks, the podcast delving into the pivotal factors shaping Europe's technological frontier. I'm Jeremy Wilkes, your host and Euronews science correspondent. In this episode, we conclude our three-part investigation into the impact of space technology on humanity. Today, our attention turns towards a distinct group of individuals, astronauts. We strive to comprehend the profound impact that space has on those who've journeyed beyond the confines of our planet's boundaries. So the routine on the International Space Station is you need to be ready to work by 7.30 in the morning before you need to get up to wash yourself a little bit, to have breakfast if you like breakfast. But 7.30 there's the morning conference and then you start working until 7.30 in the evening. So that's 12 hours. The ISS, or International Space Station, is a collaborative space laboratory and habitat where astronauts from around the world conduct scientific research and live and work in microgravity. You have two and a half hours of sports and uh, one hour of uh, lunch break. And then at 7.30 in the evening, there's another conference. It means like you're talking to the ground teams like Houston um, and other teams, Moscow, also Munich and uh, discuss like what's ongoing during the day and what are the problems. The ISS measures 108 metres from end to end, just one metre short of the complete length of a European soccer field, including the goal areas, of course. It was created in 1998 and has been continuously occupied since November 2000. And then after 7.30 in the evening, you have time um, to have your dinner, to also like look at your emails, a little bit of relaxed time to look out of the window. And then at 10, you're supposed to go to bed because the next morning at 6, you're supposed to wake up and get ready again for the morning. Imagine following such a tight schedule. Astronauts sometimes forget they're actually in space. It really looks like and it feels like working 
in an uh, underground laboratory. The only difference is we're all floating. But uh, bizarrely, the brain accepts that we're floating and it also seems very natural after a few days. Matthias is German, studied material science and joined the ESA Astronaut Corps in 2010. His first space mission was named Cosmic Kiss and was launched on November the 11th, 2021. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Est-ce que tu peux dire euh, ton prénom et... Léon. Je m'appelle Léon et ma question est en combien de temps ils préparent leur mission Our first question for Mathias is from Léon. He just visited the planetarium with his mom and he wants to know how Mathias got prepared for his space mission. An astronaut has usually a standard training, so we are qualified astronauts, but for a mission, we train again specifically. So we train on which rocket we fly, so we learn all that system. Sometimes you fly in the Soyuz, so you learn the Soyuz stuff, or I flew on a SpaceX rocket, so I learn how that one works. Then we arrive on the space station, and the space station also gets modernized and gets newer and all the old stuff disappears, new stuff comes. So we have to learn and to prepare what the new stuff is, how it works. And then we also need to train for our experiments. This training starts approximately two years before the space mission and includes preparation for responding to various emergencies in space, including situations such as fires on board, oxygen depletion or debris impacting the ISS. Trash from another spacecraft might hit the ISS and make a hole in the hull and then the air could um, flow out into space. So we also train for that. So either we find the hole very quickly and we can repair it or we find the module where the hole is and if we cannot repair it, we can at least close the door so that uh, only the air from that small area escapes and the rest of the station is safe. If there's a really, really bad day and uh, we cannot even find the leak, then we need to go to our capsule and then we need to fly back home. When he reflects on the toughest part of his training, it's not preparing for emergencies that immediately springs to his mind. So the most difficult part indeed is uh, learning one of the two languages that are spoken on the ISS. One is English. We all learn it in school and uh, it's quite easy to learn uh, for a lot of people, also for me. But Russian is difficult. The ISS does not have any official languages, but it primarily operates in English and Russian due to the long-standing collaboration between NASA and the Russian space agency Roscosmos. Bonjour, je m'appelle Patrick et ma question est de savoir quelle est la, la phase la plus impressionnante de votre expérience dans l'ISS. Back in the planetarium, Patrick wants to know what was the most extreme phase Mathias experienced during his space mission? It was when I stepped outside and I, I went on a spacewalk. Preparing for a spacewalk is indeed another demanding and challenging aspect of the astronaut training. You need to understand that there are only two people outside of the space station at a certain point in time. And when things go wrong, it's only your partner who can save you and rescue you. And the same is applicable for you. You need to be always there 
to help and assist your partner if he or she has a problem. How do you prepare for that? Well, imagine a giant pool where astronauts practice feeling weightless. It's called neutral buoyancy. And here's how it works. When things are neutrally buoyant, they neither float nor sink. Astronauts achieve this by using weights or floats to balance out their tendency to go up or down in the water. So, in the pool, dressed in spacesuits, gloves and helmets, they can practice moving around as if they were in space, even though gravity and water resistance are still there. It's almost like squeezing a tennis ball for every movement that you do with your hand. They require fine motor skills in your hands. They say it's much like trying to unravel a ball of yarn while wearing kitchen gloves underwater. And so after seven hours outside the space station, you're completely exhausted. Matthias received his training for this at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, USA. However, one aspect that's impossible to simulate on Earth is the fear of stepping out into the void of space. Seeing your feet and below your feet, you see uh, 400 kilometers of nothing. And then you see the jungle of Brazil. Your brain tells you, I'm falling, I'm falling. And then you need to uh, like kind of be prepared for that mental impact on you because it slows you down. It, it tells you you are scared, you might fall. Honestly, we are falling all the time. For half a year, I've been falling around planet Earth um, and, and all works fine if you trust your training and if you focus on the tasks that you need to do and if you don't get distracted by the tricks that your brain plays on you. Roger to open the valve prior and during bail movement, assess and counteract side loads and rotate the locking collar to the unlocked position. It's forward, bail is forward, act like they have Buttons up, to be depressed, raise back up. You're listening to Matthias during his very first spacewalk. It's March 23rd, 2022. He's out there with NASA astronaut Raja Chari, and their job is to attach new hoses to a critical module that helps control the station's temperature. You just heard the call out, put the booty over the cutie. In spacewalking terms, this means Raja is going to be putting... In the live broadcast by NASA, you can see Matthias using a safety tether to stay close to the spacecraft. Copy And behind, there's a breathtaking view of planet Earth. It is so fascinating and it's, um, it's so bizarre. Um, it's a lot of tricks that your brain plays on you when you float on the outside and you see nothing between the space station your feet and, and planet Earth and uh, your brain tells you you're falling, but uh, you're just falling as you're falling on the inside. You're not falling down. And the only way that I can describe it is a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. When Alice falls down the well... On the bottom, she is in, in a different paradise. Well, after this, I shall think nothing of, fall of falling downstairs. That was more or less like how I felt when I was outside. Absolutely fascinating, most beautiful day I had in space.
Returning to questions about everyday life in space, five-year-old Gustav has just attended the planetarium's In the Skin of an Astronaut workshop with his younger brother. And now they're both curious about how astronauts eat up there. So in the past, the food that we have in space, it tastes very bland. It is because we have a fluid shift in the human body. So it means like the fluid from our body goes up into the head. That's why we have a puffy face, like a swollen uh, big face. And that leads to the fact that uh, our nose is congested and we don't really smell well. So we don't smell the food. And that's why in the old days, the astronaut added a lot of salt. But now the scientists have figured out that too much salt in the food, it's really bad. It increases the bone loss that we experience anyway in space. So um, now the new space food, it is very poor in salt. So it tastes even less than before. And that's why most of my colleagues added uh, spicy sauce, like chili sauce, to the food. But I figured out uh, I really like Asian food. And Asian food, it has um, this umami flavor, something that we don't use very often in Western kitchen. And this is a flavor that is well-preserved. So uh, I believe in the future we will see more Asian type of food in the space station because that flavor continues. And a trend that we also might see is 3D printed food. Astronauts also grow plants in space. Unfortunately, the salad that we were supposed to grow during our mission, it um, got probably too much water on the roots. But the experiment was not perfectly designed. So unfortunately, this experiment went wrong and uh, there was nothing that we could harvest in the end or eat even. But we had also chilies, red chilies in space. They were perfectly growing. Harvesting plays a big role in getting ready for future deep space missions. It's better to grow your own food than to have to depend on travel provisions. Plus, it can teach us farming tricks in challenging environments, like growing hot peppers in Siberia. Especially important given the looming threat of climate change. The roots usually grow towards the water, and so that the plant knows that the water is, it's usually down on the ground. Uh, it has a gravity sensor. And this gravity sensor doesn't work, obviously, in space when you're in zero gravity. So the plants get stressed, they get really nervous and, and super, super stressed. And the chili expresses this by being more spicy. So the chilies that you grow in space, it's exactly the same type of chili that you then grow on the ground. The one in space, it tastes much, much spicier because it's being stressed. Moving beyond hot chilies and on to some tasty questions from our Instagram followers about everyday life on the ISS, like How does an astronaut urinate in a spaceship? So imagine it's almost like peeing into your vacuum cleaner back home, which you shouldn't do. I don't advise this, but it's more or less um, the idea that is behind our space toilet. And what's it like to sleep in weightlessness? There are two opinions among the astronauts. Some say like they need a hard contact to have the feeling like they're laying on a bed. So they strap themselves towards the wall. 
But when I was up there, half of my crew said like, oh, I don't like being strapped to the wall. I prefer free floating. And I slept super well, like better than any sleep that I could have on the ground. Do astronauts have a limit on the number of days they can spend in space? And if so, why? Yes, the astronaut days in space are limited. Uh, most um, of the reasons are medical reasons, because uh, you get space radiation. And um, in theory, like two years on the ISS, more or less the equivalent of what you can safely do before the doctor say, no, you have too much space radiation now and uh, you increase the risk of getting cancer by more than 3%. Lastly, does he ever worry about not returning? How do astronauts get themselves mentally ready for that? We are willing to take this risk as an astronaut because if you don't want to take any risk, you probably shouldn't get even out of your bed in the morning. La Terre tourne. Tout ne tourne pas toujours très rond sur la Terre, mais elle, elle tourne. Over at Vulcania, there's an exhibition right next to the planetarium showing a scaled-down version of the solar system. It's a sight to behold. The planets revolve and the entire floor spins too. If you can find a seat, you can spin along with them. Meanwhile, on the walls of this exhibit, you'll come across a message. We are the heirs of vanished stars. Now, we're shifting gears a bit. Our questions for Matthias move away from everyday stories and dive into the fascinating world of space exploration technology. Je m'appelle Maxime et j'avais une petite question. En fait, depuis quelques mois, on parle du télescope James Webb. Maxime is curious about whether the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which is revolutionizing our understanding of the universe, could render our current Earth-based telescopes obsolete. Est-ce qu'ils n'ont pas du coup un côté obsolète aujourd'hui Est-ce qu'ils vont garder leur utilité dans le temps Voilà, simple question. If everybody is just waiting for James Webb, we would have a huge bottleneck. Now, I believe James Webb is an outstanding telescope, but we need all the other telescopes on the ground as well. And even try to improve the ones on the ground, because every uh, different type of telescope has its own purpose, its own meaning, and its own advantages. Aidan's got a two-part question. He's wondering about the odds of us setting up shop on Mars. And he's also curious about which planet in our solar system is the hottest. Now, I can handle the second part. Venus takes the crown as the hottest planet in our solar system. Thanks to runaway climate change, it has a thick, heat-holding atmosphere that can roast the surface at temperatures of up to a scorching 475 degrees Celsius. As for Mars, I'll leave that one to Matthias. Um, we have three destinations in space where we want to fly to. The very first destination is the International Space Station. There we fly at 400 kilometers altitude, so every day, 16 times around our planet. And there we are in weightless conditions. So we float all the time and then we can do a lot of research that we cannot do on the ground. But we also can develop technology that we need for destination number two and three. Destination number two is the moon. And destination three is the mass. So uh, on the moon, we will need air to breathe, water to drink. Uh, we need, will need food. We will need to have energy to run our equipment. And we will need a house or a small station that protects us because there is space radiation, which is not good for you. So all that stuff we 
either can bring in from planet Earth or we can try to create it or find it on the moon. And that is actually the better plan that we want to follow. Mars has a number of characteristics that make it an interesting candidate for hosting human colonies. It is relatively close to Earth, allowing relatively short crewed spaceflight. It has water ice, potential for cultivation, and Martian days are similar to Earth's, lasting 24 hours, 39 minutes, and 35.244 seconds. However, the conditions on Mars, including its thin atmosphere and extreme temperatures, make it a very different environment from Earth. So I believe before we can actually colonize Mars, we will first need to learn a lot and we built in the beginning only a very small house for four astronauts on the moon, a little bit like a station in Antarctica, to do research. And later on, we might have a small house for four astronauts on Mars. A colony is very far in the future. Back at the planetarium, we've got a question that's all about destination number two, the moon. My name is Luca. I'm from Italy. I'd like to ask how challenging is to build a station on the moon and what will the future to build a family on the moon? You think in the future human will be born on the moon? Using the International Space Station to develop all the technology that we can develop there for the stuff that we will need also on the moon. And then we will have a small station that flies around the moon, not landing there, that is the gateway. And there we can also live and use it as a platform to fly down um, to the surface of the moon. And on the moon, in the beginning, we will mainly be only for one month, because in one month on the moon you get as much radiation as you get in six months on the ISS. And um, in theory, like you can accumulate up to uh, two years uh, living on the ISS uh, as amount of radiation, maybe even a little bit longer, um, or half a year on the moon, and then you have already enough radiation to have an increased risk of getting cancer. So that excludes already the fact that in the very near future we will see people living forever on the moon and also having children or babies born on the moon. If we forget about radiation and we imagine that a kid is born, a baby is born on the moon, I think that in theory would be possible, but this poor baby, it will be born into a different gravity field like uh, compared to our Earth. So imagine I would weigh 60 kilograms here on planet Earth. On the moon, I would only weigh 10 kilograms, one sixth, because that is the difference between the gravity of moon and Earth. And so the baby that was born on the moon, it would grow up in a gravity field, which is a sixth of Earth. So it probably would grow much taller because it needs less bones um, to support its own weight. So it could grow like a giraffe, like a very long neck maybe. But then if this baby wants to fly to planet Earth, it would not be stable enough. It would have a lot of medical problems before it arrives on planet Earth. So uh, that alone shows you there is, in theory, this potential. 
but I believe we will not see it in the very, very near and, and not even in the middle of further future because um, we also need to protect the babies and not make such experiments on them. I also had a question for Matthias. I wanted to know if he could see the effects of climate change from the International Space Station. Climate change is something that happens slowly, still way too fast, but it happens not in six months. What I can see from space is what we humans are doing to our planet. So I see fire. When I fly, for example, um, over Brazil there, I see dark green areas, which is the jungle. So where all the fresh oxygen is produced for the entire world also, like it's our lung. And then I see light green areas, and the light green areas is where we do farming. And uh, exactly on the border between the light green and the dark green, that's the border between the rainforest and the farming area, I always say huge, huge clouds, like fires and smoke uh, going up to space. And there I know people are burning down the jungle to find more room for, for farming. And uh, that makes us astronauts always very, very sad because we know there people are destroying our planet and they are contributing to climate change. Then I fly over other areas and in old maps I should see lakes. But then I look out of the window and I see a desert and I know like, ooh, that lake has dried out, it has disappeared because of climate change. I fly over other areas in the mountains and there I should see huge glaciers. But these glaciers have reduced in size, they become very, very small or maybe even disappeared completely. And again, I can see this is a consequence of climate change because the planet is heating up. And an Instagram user added an interesting layer to my question. How can space exploration help find solutions for our hurting planet? The destinations that we want to fly to is the ISS, the Moon and Mars. Mars had in the past water on the surface and Mars is now a desert planet. So uh, something went really, really wrong. We had climate change, extreme climate change on Mars. So flying to Mars will also help us to understand what went wrong on Mars and hopefully what we should not do to protect our planet Earth to not turn into a desert planet like planet Mars. But also on the International Space Station, we can learn a lot what we can improve on planet Earth. Life on the ISS is a constant experiment in how to reduce the consumption of everyday resources. For example, not a single drop of water goes to waste. Tears, sweat, urine, everything gets recycled. In space, it's a closed loop and we recycle all that water. And that technology we also bring back to planet Earth to help areas in Africa, refugee camps, really dry areas to be more efficient on reusing water. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine. Je voudrais savoir quelles sont vos premières impressions quand vous revenez sur Terre to conclude our round of questions at the planetarium, Sabine wants to know what was the first thing that crossed Matthias's mind when he landed back on Earth? Wow, life on Earth is heavy. It's like all your body has weight again. Because in, after floating for six months, I felt almost like a butterfly, or even lighter than a butterfly, because I didn't even have to flap my wings, which I don't have as a human being. But uh, floating in space, it's so nice. And coming back to planet Earth, 
like actually having to carry your own body. Uh, it's, uh, it's almost like doing sports. Matthias is eager to go back to space. He's one of the six Europeans currently eligible for a mission to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm really crossing my fingers to be one of the first Europeans who flies very close to the moon or actually steps onto the moon. Leaving planet Earth is something extraordinary and it inevitably changes you. Microgravity can make astronauts grow up to five centimetres, lose up to 2% of bone density per month and even reshape their hearts into a more spherical form. But these changes aren't just physical. Looking at Earth, our planet, from the outside completely shifts your perspective. You get to witness 16 sunrises in a single day and... You see, the universe is so black, so dark. It's like blacker than the blackest color that you've ever seen. And in front of this black, in front of this nothing, is this beautiful planet Earth, a blue marble. And you literally can feel the energy that there's life down on planet Earth. And everything that you have learned and understood with your brain the moment you are outside in space and you look down, it's also your heart understands. It's very touching. Well, that's it for our three-part series on space exploration. If you want to know more about astronaut Matthias Maurer's ISS mission, you can get his book, Cosmic Kiss, Zex Monata after ISS, available in German. In the next episodes, we'll venture again into other worlds, this time virtual ones, the metaverse. I'm your host, Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is written and produced by Marta Rodriguez-Martinez, reporting for this episode from Vulcania in Auvergne, France. The theme music is by Leo Lebrun. Sound editing is by Jean-Christophe Marcot, and sound mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our editor-in-chief is Ali Isan Aydin. If you aren't already, you can listen to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a positive review and, of course, sharing it with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.